So we're reading from 2 Kings 4, um, verses 1 to 7. Just to give you guys a moment to find that. There are Bibles scattered around if you need one. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your son can live on the rest. As you saw before, the title, How to Live Debt-Free. I bet you didn't realize that this morning you were coming to a self-help seminar on financial management. You are more than welcome to call me Dave Ramsey, if you like. If you don't know who he is, he's a financial guru. And with a sermon title like this, I I, I wouldn't blame you for thinking that this is exactly what you are about to get. Uh, Interestingly, you know, financial debts, they can be a source of great concern and stress for us, can't they? Money, after all, is a significant aspect in each of our lives. Yet, Yet, even though, at first glance, Financial debt is the central problem of the text this morning. There's actually a deeper debt that causes this problem in the nation of Israel. And it's a debt that we share today. That is, of course, the debt of our sin. The price of that debt is high And it is not a debt that you want to try and live with. As with all debt, if you don't pay it off, then one day the creditor will come to retrieve the payment. And so the question that you want to ask yourself this morning is, how can you live debt-free? Well, in the spirit, but not the content of a self-help seminar, let me give you four steps in how to do that that arise from this passage. So let's have our Bibles open and let's begin at step one. Don't deny your debt. Don't deny your debt. Let's read verse one. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elijah, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. We've seen the sons of prophets over the last couple of weeks. They were basically disciples of the prophets who were probably led by Elijah and now led by Elisha. Now, obviously, they were allowed to marry because in this one, in this text this morning, we have a window into the life of one of the widows. And as I mentioned before, at first glance here, there's probably not much that would make us sit up and pay attention. You know, I know that on... My first reading of this, uh, there didn't seem to be things that kind of stood out to me about what what we read. But this this opening verse here, 
it paints a, a telling picture. Because what we see here is, is not just a widow who's going through the tragedy of, of losing her husband and soon losing her kids to slavery. No, this, this situation, it taps into a, a broader, a bigger picture of what's going on in the nation of Israel. You see, long before Israel became a kingdom and long before it split into the two north and south kingdoms, God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, as we mentioned before, and then He led them to Mount Sinai where He made a covenant with those people through Moses, the man of God whom God appointed to lead them out of Egypt. And they promised in that covenant with God that they would obey God's laws. You know, it's well documented in the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch, that they failed miserably in that commitment. It did not take them long at all to disobey and to walk away from that commitment. And here we see the result of their disobedience of a particular set of laws that concern certain people. I read Exodus 22 before. Look at it again here in verses 22 to 24. Do you notice the very similar language from this passage to our passage this morning? The the wife of this deceased disciple cries out to Elisha, the man of God, the one who speaks and acts on God's behalf. And why does she cry out? It's not just because her husband is dead, but because Whatever debt they had is going to result in her two sons becoming slaves. There is a backstory being told here in this verse about the state of the northern kingdom of Israel. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 to 10, if you're taking notes, gives instructions on something called leveret marriage. And that was uh, this, this thing was how a widow would be taken care of by her family. So if a a woman's husband died, her brother-in-law would then make her his wife, and he would then provide for her. He would also father more children for her that would carry on his brother's line. Now, uh, if that's new to you, I'm sure you have many questions about that because it certainly uh, is not something that we do today, and it was not the part of God's original design for marriage. And I'm happy to discuss that later, but the point that I want you to grasp for now is that this practice of leveret marriage was supposed to be the way that widows were looked after in Israel. Without this, a widow would be susceptible to mistreatment in society, and it would leave her, it would keep her on the bottom rung of society. Uh, the story of Ruth and Boaz, you may be familiar with it. The, the book of Ruth is uh, a few chapters long. It's, it's, uh, it, it is one of the most well-known examples of this in the Bible. And this is just one of the ways that God instructs Israel to care for the poor and the needy in their community. Uh, not to mention the many times that God just simply tells them, He instructs them that they need to do this, that they need to look after the poor and the widows and the orphans. And so the widow cries out to Elisha and appeals to him on behalf of her husband, who, as she described, feared the Lord. Not only that, she appealed to the fact that Elisha knew that he feared the Lord. And so he was obviously a man who had that reputation, at least with Elisha. 
And yet, because of the state of Israel, here this widow finds herself in a situation where the creditor is coming to take her boys and make them slaves. Can you imagine how God must have felt about that? Well, we don't need to imagine, do we? As I mentioned earlier, there are many places in Scripture like Exodus 22 and others where God makes it very clear how He feels about the mistreatment of the poor and needy in society. Let's look at another set of instructions regarding the poor from Leviticus 25. Keep your finger in 2 Kings 4 and turn with me to Leviticus 25.35. If you're looking at the Blue Bibles, it's on page 60. And let's have a read of what it says there. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his clan and return to the possession of his fathers. Do you notice how the system was supposed to work? If an Israelite became poor, the solution wasn't to just let him off the hook and say, "Uh, don't worry about it, mate, just don't worry about paying your debts, we'll just forget them. Uh, No, the solution was to give him the means to pay it off by working for you. But you were never to, to charge interest on his debt, nor you to treat him and his family as slaves. Such practices would just push them deeper and deeper into slavery. They were to be, as, uh, as it says in this passage, like a hired worker. And then in the year of Jubilee, he was able to return to his clan and his fathers and receive his inheritance as a free man. So this was God's way of ensuring that the poor were taken care of. This was God's way of ensuring that his people didn't enslave each other. But Israel, by the time of Elisha and this widow, was clearly failing terribly in keeping these covenant promises. Look at verse 38 of Leviticus 25 again. God, once again, here it is, God doesn't just drop this in here in the middle of talking about the poor for no reason. This was supposed to be part of their national identity to show the world that they were God's. He is the one who delivered them out of Egypt. He is their God. I am the Lord your God. And I did this to be your God. And one of the ways that the world was meant to know this truth was in the fact that they did not enslave one another. If you read on from verse 42 in Leviticus 25, he says, For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. 
This is what Israel was supposed to do. But no. They've forgotten their God. They've forgotten that He rescued them from slavery. They don't fear Him. And they don't care for the poor. Even though God has redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, they remain enslaved to their sin. And they continue to enslave one another. That is what is on display in the very first verse of our passage. That is what we see. This widow's debt has come about because God's people and their sin debt still remained. And thousands and thousands of years later, God's people's sin debt still remains. Doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, do we not also fail to show the world the holiness and compassion of our God by failing to care for the poor and needy? Isn't it because of our own sin debt that we fail to create a perfect world? Which, of course, caused John Lennon to imagine his own atheist utopia, where there was no need for greed or hunger, where that a brotherhood of man shared all the world. Isn't it because of our slavery to sin that we fail to perfectly love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Jesus didn't say in John 12, verse 8, that the poor would always be with us because he was a cynical man. No, he said that because he knew that even his own people, even though they would be ones who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that they would continue, to str- continue in their struggle against sin till that final day when he perfects them. Don't deny your debt. In our struggle against our own sin, all of us have failed and continue to fail to perfectly love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And God is the ultimate creator, the perfect, holy, only righteous one who demands the payment for our sin. And yet the difference between him and the creditor in our passage is that the price that God has set for our debt our sin debt is just and deserving. Colossians 2.14 describes our sin as a, as a record of debt that stands against us. The debt that we owe God far surpasses any debt that you might owe to your parents or the bank. No, our debt of sin and the payment required is nothing short of our lives, and it would be ruinous for us to deny that it is there. Friends, we we cannot redeem that debt through our good works. We cannot redeem ourselves by being the most sacrificial, generous person the world has ever seen, putting Mother Teresa to shame. That's why we need a Savior. And that's why we need a redeemer. And so that brings us to step two of how to live 
get free. Go to God. Go to God. You know, we've actually uh, already seen the widow do this. She has cried out to Elisha, the man of God, to seek redemption from her creditor. And now here we see what God says. Let's read from verse 2. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in, in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door beside yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So Elisha responds immediately to the widow with help. What shall I do for you? And his follow-up of, of what have you got in your house? Indicates that Elisha here is ready to help. And the widow's response is, is telling, isn't it? She says she has nothing in her house except a jar of oil. Now, this could be a hyperbolic nothing. It could be that, you know, maybe she's still got some tables and chairs and, uh, uh, you know, but everything else of value is gone. Or it could very well be that she has sold off everything except this last bit of oil to perhaps cook a final meal. Either way, it, this indicates us, it shows us just how truly poor and desperate and, and how deep her poverty was. She was down to her last drop. You might remember from a few weeks ago that Elijah also came across a widow in Zarephath who said in 1 Kings 17, 12, that she only had a little flour and a little oil left to have for her final meal. And this is yet another parallel, like others that we're going to see throughout Elisha's life, that shows that he is Elijah's true successor and has received a double portion of his spirit, as he requested. Well, God will yet again bring glory to Himself by turning just a little bit of oil into a sign of His compassion and His power. This is yet another helpful reminder to us that God is not limited by resources. The Psalms say that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills for a reason. And so, brothers and sisters, if you ever feel like you have very little to offer to God, then take heart. He delights in, He loves to display His glory through things the world wouldn't even take a second glance at. Without saying, ah, oh, there's no way you can do anything with that. He has not stopped doing that. He continues to do that day, and He does it. He continues to do it till in this day, and he does it because it amplifies the fact that it is him behind it all, not us. And so what does Elisha instruct her to do? Go, borrow more vessels. Not, not just jars, anything. Whatever receptacle any of your neighbors can spare, if it can hold oil, then borrow it. Grab their Tupperware, grab their baby baths, whatever it is. Grab it so that you can fill it with oil. And as many as you can, not too few, as many as you can. And then watch how God will multiply what you have to provide for what you need. Friend, have you recognized your debt of sin and gone to God for redemption? 
You know, the solution to recognizing that our sin enslaves us is not to try and work ourselves out of it. Your jar of oil will never be enough to pay off God. Our good works will never be enough to satisfy our debt of sin. To be freed of our sin debt, we must go to God alone. Only He can cancel your debt and only He can redeem. That brings us to step three. Receive redemption. Receive redemption. Let's read how the widow responds to the word of the Lord spoken through Elisha and how God brings about redemption in her life. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And she said to her, and he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. We don't really know why uh, shutting the doors was important. Perhaps to safeguard her from snooping neighbors or simply uh, so that it wouldn't be a showy display of God's power. Whatever the reason, the widow shows her faith in the Lord and believes that Elisha speaks for the Lord and obeys that word. And her sons also join with her in this. And so as she does so, she responds to this word, the Lord redeems her. The Lord redeems her. To be redeemed meant to have your debt paid for or or cancelled. And because of that cancellation of debt, it would mean that you are saved and brought back, no longer a slave. And so the Lord redeems this widow by working through the man of God. That title, the man of God, is actually an important one in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. You know, these days we often uh, throw it around in contemporary Christianity, calling um, every, you know, very spiritual people in our minds either men of God or, or women of God, uh, shortens to mog or wog. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad or wrong, but in the Old Testament, this title carried far more significant weight. Deuteronomy 33 verse 1 is the first time that it pops up in reference to Moses, he being the man of God. And the term is also used in reference to other prophets that we read about in the Old Testament that the Lord sends to Israel. But significantly, this title is used to refer to Elijah by the widow whose life he saves in that same verse, 1 Kings 17, 18. Sorry, not the same verse, different verse. She used it to refer to him as the man of God, and now it is being used here in 2 Kings 4, 7 of Elisha. The widow's redemption came by going to God, hearing and responding to the Word of God spoken by the man of God. 
And so it is with our own debt of sin. Elisha began to address the sin debt of Israel by doing what they didn't. By reflecting the character of God in his care for and in his redemption of this widow. The the man of God, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, continued to anticipate the, the, the redemption of Israel, the one who would save them completely and redeem them from their sin. Yet he wouldn't be able to ultimately address that problem. Only one could come and do that. Only one would finally deal with our sin debt once and for all. One who wouldn't just be a man of God, but who would be God Himself. One who was and who is the Son of Man, the one who is the Son of God. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Our sin debt cannot be cleared through our own effort and through our own resources. It can only be cleared by going to God and by hearing His Word in the Gospel and by responding to that Word. Let me give you the full context of Colossians 2, 13-14, which I quoted earlier. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When the Bible talks about redeeming us in Christ, this is what it's talking about. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering why life feels like it's missing something or it feels like something's just not quite right, that you keep trying to do the right thing but you still can't seem to penetrate why that just doesn't feel like it's enough, it's because you have a sin debt with the God of the universe that separates you from Him. If you have not turned to Jesus and trusted in Him, then you are far from Him and your debt will be paid to Him through His eternal judgment. Friends, don't deny your debt. God is real. The debt that we owe to Him is real. And it is the explanation for the feeling of lack that you have. Not a single one of us has been born having balanced accounts with God. None. But the good news of the Bible is that He Himself has provided a way for us to have that debt cancelled. The God-man Jesus Christ would come to live the perfect, debt-free-from-birth life that we never could, to die on a Roman cross so that the debt of our sin could be paid through His sacrifice.
And how do we then access that debt cancellation? By recognizing our sin debt. By turning away from it. And by trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Romans 3, 24 to 25 says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received, how? By faith. He paid your debt so that through faith in Him, you might be redeemed. We were once slaves to sin, but because He has redeemed us by His blood, we are now slaves to Him. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed so that you might hear it and respond. Does that fill you with wonder? Does that fill you with gratitude And thankfulness at God's mercy that He shows upon us. Even in the midst of our continued disobedience. Even in the midst of our continued wrestle and struggle with sin. Each morning anew. He continues to pour out His mercy. His grace on us. Friends, you can live a debt-free life. And you don't even have to cut up your credit cards and work three jobs to do it. I mean, if you need want debt-free in terms of money, you might have to do that. But in terms of the debt that matters the most, it is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Don't let your only and final interaction with God be that of Him as your creditor. Because His desire is for you to turn and receive Him as your Redeemer. That is how this widow ended her interaction with God. Look again at verse 7. Sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. This widow's debts were not only paid, but the Lord gave her life. Not only were her boys redeemed from slavery and brought back, they were given life. As Jesus himself would say in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life in Jesus not only pays off our sin debt and clears our accounts with God, but he gives us abundant life in the here and in the now. Enough to live off for the rest of our earthly lives. And brothers and sisters, it is because we have received Him as Redeemer that we can even begin to see, by His sanctifying grace, a change in our hearts that enlarges them in compassion and in love for our neighbors, for those who are the poorest and the neediest in our world. You see, too often, too easily, we, we turn to Luke 10, we point to the Good Samaritan, and we say, see everyone, Jesus says, we need to look after the poor and needy, so get out there and do it. Let me just crack that whip. And sure, you, you might G up a few people to get involved in it by doing that, but it will be action that is still trying to pay off debt. 
No, coming to Jesus in repentance and faith means that we can care for the poor and the needy from a place of cancelled debt, from a position of redemption in Christ, not from a position of slavery to sin. But what does that look like, right? What does a debt-free Christian life look like when applied to the specific problem of our text, that of caring for the poor and the needy? Well, that takes us to step four. Freely give. Freely give. This particular application is, is a subset of our overall response, isn't it? As, G, as, God, as the Lord calls us to be holy like He is holy, that, that pervades throughout all of our lives. And yet, here in this passage, this is a, a particular response, a particular application. And it's a significant one. The thing for us to consider, well, the first thing for us to consider is, do you fear and trust the Lord even in the midst of great tragedy? Do you fear and trust the Lord even in the midst of great tragedy? This, this widow's husband was obviously one who did fear the Lord, as we see in verse 1. And evidently, she also feared the Lord. She went to Elisha, she asked what she needed to do, she responded and obeyed. In fact, she trusted the Lord even though she was down to her very last drop, even though she had nothing except a jar of oil. So, brothers and sisters, do you trust the Lord even when you're down to your last dollar? What if, what if an electrical fire burned down your house and you didn't realize that you hadn't renewed your insurance? What if you were in an accident that paralyzed you and you didn't have life insurance? Unless we have a sure and steady anchor and trust in the Lord, we're going to be more worried about where our money comes from than what we do with it. It is far less likely that we will seek to freely give if right down at the bottom of that is a deep trust and fear of God that understands that He is the one from whom all things come. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 and verse 25 that we need not worry about how our needs will be met. That God who owns all of creation will provide for us. But that brings up another question, doesn't it? I mean, how? How is it that Jesus can say these things and that we can trust in that? Have you ever thought about that from that passage? I mean, for us as Westerners, people who kind of live in societies where there are lots of safety nets and lots of opportunity, we generally don't have that concern about where food is going to come from. And so we might think, well, yeah, God, perhaps in places where that is the case, maybe He provides for them miraculously, but surely that's not the normal means that Jesus' promise in Matthew 6 is fulfilled for His people. How is that the case? Surely throughout history and throughout the world, Christians have trusted in Jesus' promise. 
But how? Well, surely this is most commonly fulfilled in Jesus' church. Consider what we heard earlier about how God's people in the Old Testament were supposed to provide for and care for the poor and needy in their community. The same means of provision for the poor in God's new covenant community continues. We see this all over the New Testament, from Jesus' reference to the least of these, my brothers, in Matthew 25, to Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, where we see the early church providing for all who were in need. We see it in the epistles and in the instructions to care for the poor, like Paul's instructions to to care for other churches in, in Romans 15 and in 2 Corinthians 8, in Paul's instructions to care for the widows in 1 Timothy 5. We see it in James 1 where he instructs, uh, tells us to care for orphans and widows. We see it in John's letter, in his first letter, where he calls on us to lay down our lives and our goods, our things for our brothers and sisters. And so in, in the New Testament, as in the Old, there is a definite priority in Scripture to do this first within the Christian community where it becomes part of our visible witness of our love for one another, that the world notices, as Jesus in John 13, 35 reminds us. The church, the church, like Israel, has a God-given mandate to care for its most vulnerable members. The difference is that you enter this community, of fa- this community by faith, not by blood. Brothers and sisters, if you're wondering where to start, where to begin in how to apply this, start here. Our church is small and as far as I'm aware, we don't have anybody who is in this position of great need. But Lord willing, through evangelism and the Lord adding more to our number, that will change. Or perhaps through another global financial crisis, I I don't know. There will be more opportunities for us to care for the needy among us. That's certainly my prayer. Have you considered that that is part of what it means be part of God's church. Now, in saying that, I don't want to say, I don't want you to hear me saying that we don't or that we ought not to care for the poor and needy in our society. Here in Darwin, our city has many people, especially Aboriginal Australians, who are clearly among some of the poorest and neediest in our society. Have you considered how we ought to serve them and care for them. Now, the the issues are many and they are complex and the history is deep. I don't want to suggest that solutions in this are straightforward. But surely, as Christians, as we think about these things, we must see 
that the ultimate solution is found only in Christ. And, and I hope and I pray that as we, as a local church, consider these complex challenges and how to best follow the Lord in them, that we would do so not, not looking to the world's ways of how we address and tackle these challenges. Because they so evidently don't get to the root of the issue. But that we would seek solutions that are centered on Christ, that are anchored in the gospel. Because to provide financial debt relief to the needy without providing spiritual debt relief to the needy is profoundly unloving. Let me say that again. To provide financial debt relief to the needy without providing spiritual debt relief to the needy is profoundly unloving. Why? Because not only are you not addressing the root of the issue, but you are simply giving them enough to exist in this life and to spend the rest of eternity under judgment. But that brings up another question. How do we do all this? Well, I think our passage gives us one general principle to apply, whether in our church or outside. In verse 3, we see that the way out of poverty isn't always just about giving handouts. You know, some would even argue today, perhaps correctly, that to do so can do more harm than good. Now, I, uh, I don't want to press this verse too much for this point. Um, Matthew Henry certainly does but I'm not going to do that. But I think this does actually tap into a general principle that we see in Scripture, which is that work is good and that we should seek to engage in it as far as we're able. We saw in Leviticus 25 that when the person in debt uh, needs to pay that off, they basically become a hired worker. And we see here that the widow is called upon to, to borrow vessels rather than just have them be given to her. And we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that Paul encourages the church in Thessalonica to admonish the idol. That taps into a sin of laziness. And we see it even more strongly expressed in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, where Paul says that if anyone is not willing to work, then let him not eat. I think the picture is clear. If you are... If you are in need, ask for help from your brothers or sisters, brothers and sisters. And please do not be afraid to ask. And if you're prone to over-asking and being idle, then consider how God might be admonishing you in that. In a community founded on the gospel, in a community made up of those whose debts have been redeemed by the risen Savior, in the local church, there should always be help for the needy from within that local body. And if that local body is unable to sustain them, then there should always be help from other local bodies if that is struggling. Think about it. If, if such support 
for the church and for other churches to support one another could be done in Paul's day when they were in cities spread across Asia Minor in different countries and the only technology that they had was paper and pen and somebody who would walk it over to them? Then surely in our era of gigafast internet and social mobility and planes and whatnot, we can do the same. It is in the local church, in this community of the redeemed, that a growing love and concern for the poor may continue to enlarge our hearts and sanctify us in laying down our earthly gains for the sake of others. How ready are you to do that? If you've become debt-free of your sin through faith in Christ, is there within you a diminishing concern for your own bank account and a growing concern for how you care for the poor and the needy? Is there a growing desire within you to steward your earthly resources well in the limited years that you have for the sake of giving freely and generously? Brothers and sisters, as the chorus of the redeemed, let us sing as those who have been set free. We have freely received. May we freely give. I hope you've seen that these four steps aren't actually about how to pay off your mortgage or your car loan quickly. But I also hope that you've seen how far more crucial they are to your life than those considerations. God has so generously and so graciously redeemed our sin debt. What more can we do but but owe all to Him? What more can we do but continue to come to Him for grace and seek to freely live and freely give as those who have been redeemed? Don't deny your debt. Go to God. Receive redemption. Freely give. How will you live debt-free? Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize... in our own selves that we imperfectly reflect you to the world. We recognize that our compassion does not match yours. That we too easily turn blind eyes to the needs around us 
that we too easily look within ourselves for the things that we want. Thank you, God, that you are continually at work within us. Help us, Lord, to turn to Christ, to gratefully receive his redemption, to continue to pursue you, knowing that we are no longer slaves to sin, but that we are slaves to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.